SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 73 with guest Bob Ward. Welcome. Our guest today is Bob Ward. Bob is a long-term and well-known SQL Server product team member. He's currently a principal architect with the SQL Server engineering team, focused on architecture, customer success, and technical evangelism of SQL Server. So welcome, Bob. Hey, Greg. How you doing? Yeah, really, really well. I was uh, or just howdy, thinking... howdy, as we I, say in Texas. Howdy. howdy. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there I was just go. thinking I hadn't seen you for such a long time, but yes, no. Yeah. It's uh, So you seem to have gone from strength to strength, and of course... Uh, heavily involved in SQL Server 2017. But uh, first up, if you just maybe give people a little bit of a background as to where you've come from, uh, and because they don't all haven't followed <laughs> along over sure, the years. Sure, sure. And, uh, yeah, and how you come to be in the current position. Absolutely. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, uh, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that. I just celebrated in the end of, end of October my 24th anniversary at Microsoft. Wow. Um, and I, I know. Um, and one of those people that date back to, I started doing SQL Server OS 2 1.1 when mm-hmm. I joined the company. And my background, this is the total irony of this, my background was Unix. I was yep. a Unix Oracle C++ developer uh, out of college for several years at different companies, American Airlines here locally in the Dallas-Fort area and so forth, and had an opportunity. It was a database guy, but also a developer on Unix systems and had the opportunity to come to Microsoft in, in 93 to work on their products. And I started out in technical support. A lot of people have seen and known me over the years uh, being in our CSS support team, working a lot of really crazy troubleshooting problems, kind of famous for using debuggers in my presentations and scenarios. And then a couple of years ago, I got an opportunity to join the actual engineering team directly um, at, as with the stuff you just talked about, architecture, success, evangelism, and so forth. Um, still get to live in Texas, which I, I love. I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas, but I, I work for the engineering team. I make my way up to Seattle as needed and then, of course, to all sorts of different uh, customer engagements and events around the world. So. Mm. Yeah, in fact, it, it's always fascinated me a little bit. You're one of the people who doesn't live in Seattle, and so how, how do you find that, just as a matter of interest in terms of Microsoft, how does that go where there seems to be such a focus still on uh, on Redmond in particular? Sure. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I think uh, 10 years ago I couldn't have done this. Uh, technology hmm. a huge difference, obviously. Um, so being able to use technology in a way that's different to remotely even do video chats if I need to write with somebody in Seattle. Um, I don't know. Te- technology has made a big difference to be able to still connect with the team up there. You have to go face-to-face, which is why I do my, make my way up there every once in a while. Yeah. The other thing, too, about my current role is being involved still with a lot of customers, right? So, mm-hmm. yes, I need to work closely with the engineering team that I work with up there, but I also still work with the customers. And being centrally located in the U.S. is actually an advantage for me. So. Yeah. 
you know, you got to fly to the East Coast from Seattle. That can be a challenge doing that a lot. So for me, being in Dallas, um, we have this amazing airlines called American Airlines, where basically there's a nonstop flight anywhere in the country. <laughs> yeah, ba- basically Dallas is yeah. is the but hub in that area, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, basically I'm, it's I'm a cool hub. I'm going to Toronto next week to speak at an event, and it's mm. a three-hour nonstop trip from from Dallas. So, um, so yeah, so being in Texas Central located, I also still work in the Microsoft office in Texas, in the Irving area. So the support Mm. teams and the field teams in this region of the country work there. So I still get to connect with them. It keeps me very well grounded on what customers are doing by, and and not that our engineering team in Seattle doesn't do that, but for me, I get an advantage where I just work close to all the time, the people who work with customers all the time. So Mm. I get that unique perspective of hearing from anybody from just a uh, field engineer, uh, somebody who's a technical sales professional, or even the support team themselves. So it can be a little bit of a challenge. That's why I have to go up there. I was in there October. I was up in October after the past summit for an entire week, just grounding myself again with the entire team of what's going on face to face. But it's it's really not been that difficult to stay connected both with customers and with our teams, uh, even being here in Texas. Yeah, in fact, I remember there were quite quite a number of people there the, when we had a past summit. Uh, down in Dallas Fort Worth area many years yep. ago, and uh, yeah, you all graciously hosted us out for the evening. That's right. To go that's and right. Have a look. That's several years back. Yeah, that's right. It was mo- most interesting to have a look. Yeah, now, I think it's it's just fascinates me that it hasn't become even more easy to have remote workers uh, just just routine. Uh, it's uh, it still fascinates me that almost every remote meeting starts with connection issues and things and so on. And I, I do wonder, as in the industry, though, why we haven't sort of progressed much faster with that. Um, I, t- I will tell hmm. you that even just thinking about our own technology, we use Skype for Business, right, yeah. the Microsoft. And I think about that technology five years ago with me because one thing about when I worked in CSS we're a global organization so I'd have mm. meetings all over the time with people all over the world and you're right about those connection struggles lately it's been better I, I would yeah. say lately uh, and I'm sure it has to do with be- better internet connectivity better software design uh, from mm. these communication programs but I have found more rarely having Skype issues or Skype for business issues connectivity with anybody I'm talking to. Hey, we're having, we're having a pretty good connection right now. Yeah, yeah, Skype. yeah, indeed. Yeah, no no <laughs> yeah. problem at all. And yeah. in fact, uh, the the um the the only reason we don't tend to use Skype for business for these things is just I find it almost impossible to record. Uh I see. it it has sort of recording functionality, but it doesn't Oh, it, it doesn't allow you to control levels. It doesn't let you set levels for individual people. The recording is not people. as good, the capabilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, uh, where the, the consumer-grade Skype still had better sort of, well, gotcha. it, it had an option to have plugins where you could then sort of do recording and so on. Yeah, no, But you mentioned good. about that remote, remote idea. One thing I've done lately is try to balance myself with more remote presentations as well because, you know, I speak mm-hmm. at a lot of events. And I love meeting people face-to-face in one-on-one events. It, there's nothing substituting yeah. for that. I just yesterday did uh, a recording for the past virtual chapter for performance mm-hmm. right from my office. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's pretty darn convenient. It is, and I yeah. had a big audience. You can get big audiences in these virtual things. Um, Brent Ozar does something called Group Buy now. Yeah. And I've done a couple of those, and pretty big sized people come. And I think it's also easier for people to consume those and justify consuming those at their desk, at their, where yeah. they work. Versus having to pay a lot of money to go to an event, but every once in a while, a pass event, a SQL bits, uh, inter- SQL intersection, ignite, you, those things, they're still really worth their weight in gold because you get one-on-one face-to-face time yeah, with people. Exactly, it, it's it, hard to substitute for that. Yeah, it, it is completely different. But the, but yeah, I think the more and more of those, and it's it's sort of interesting in terms of the technical evangelism side of the role. Where it's it's one of the things I've 
often had discussions with, say, uh, MVPs in, I don't know, Perth in Australia or something, and, and, and they often sort of moan about the fact that it's a fairly small community where they are. And, and right. you know, I keep telling them you, you need to think about sort of a global focus and who cares if you're in Perth. Right. And, you know, I, I've got this unique personality at Microsoft. I'm one of these really weird people like, hey, you want a Skype call? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I don't care where you are. I've met people at conferences before. They're like, look, I, I'd love to talk to you later. I have to go. I'm like, fine, here's my card. Why don't you set up a Skype call? They're like, really? I'm like, sure. <laughs> I, I, I've got, I love talking about this product. I'm pretty passionate about it. Yeah. And I'm not afraid to talk about it, the good and the bad of it. So, mm. Um, I, I really enjoy meeting and connecting with people on this product. I don't care where you are in the world about it. So yeah. I remember, I remember I, uh, about this a call uh, after the past summit, someone made some comment about my speaking voice. And I think you said something about, I'd love to get Bob on my podcast. Yeah. And I thought, I thought, you know what? I think Greg's right. I think I have not been able to do this. So mm-hmm. you, look what we did on, we did on Twitter. We just connected. I said, sign there me up. And oh, here we good. are, right? So, yeah. So, so it must have been, it's, uh, very interesting getting SQL Server 2016, obviously the, us, and then SQL Server 2017, so soon after, I suppose. The, right. one of the things that people would immediately comment on is just how soon that is. Um, yes. yet it still seemed to have a lot of value in the product. You know, it's interesting. Uh, SQL 16, I think, was a very landmark release for us. Yep, I mean, we put was. a lot of effort and things into that. And 2012 and 14 were really good releases, but we put our heart and soul into a lot of things into 16. And so the the irony is, is that as we were building 16, we knew we wanted to do SQL Server on Linux. Yeah. Uh, and we could not fit into that time frame, but we wanted to get it to market pretty quick. So that's one big push for us was to do that in that time frame was to a driving factor in 17. But at the same time, this is where the cloud first approach really kind of helped us. We've got an army of people that are developing on SQL Server and an Azure database. And so these are the same database engines, right? So yeah. there are features and functionalities that we're pushing into Azure database engine constantly, monthly. And yet, and we preview them and so forth. And so that actually gives us the ability to really kind of accelerate uh, other things into the engine uh, in a major release like SQL 17. That's why mm-hmm. you saw more things in there than just like, say, Linux being released. Um, I think it's fair to say that we also have a set of customers that like us having this flexibility of releasing a little quicker yeah. than maybe in the old days when it was a five-year type approach. So don't, and, don't, yeah, I'm in not, fact, people were yeah. horrified previously. It was sort of like, yes. uh, I think DBAs in particular were into stability and the idea of something that where the platform kept changing made them very nervous. Well, I think that's true. I do think, though, that um, I think it's very fair to say when you look at SQL 17 and 16 together, that 16 is still a great release. So if you're a customer yeah. right now that's already got a project and you're moving to 16, you're like, oh, my gosh, I missed the boat. I didn't hit 17. Hmm. I take heart. I mean, 16 still got an amazing set of features to it, and we fully, fully believe that's a great release for somebody to be using. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, we're not going to stop. We, we think we had these great features we're putting in Azure. You know, why not put them available to people that have not made that decision yet? So, hmm. you know, maybe you're somebody who's on 2008 right now. You saw 16, but you weren't ready to make that move. Now 17 comes along. Now you have a choice of either one, right? Yeah. So, And, and so, listen, does – does it end up then really downplaying the concept of versions longer term? You know, I wonder if we move to that model. We haven't made that decision yet. If you look at Windows yeah. Server, it kind of made that decision, right, where where Windows is moving to a model of a, of a more frequent update versus a major version thing, right? Mm. Um, and, and don't be shocked if we start taking a look at that as well. 
Um, I, I wonder as, if that also gives customers a little more comfort to say, yeah, I, I don't need to wait for this big major version thing. I'm just going to stay on the train of SQL updates. Or maybe I get to a point where I pause and say, no, I don't want to keep on this train of major updates. I'm going to stay on a more stable type thing and then join the train later or something, right? Yeah, um, exactly. So, yeah, so don't be shocked if that's something we don't take a look at. Maybe you saw we already changed our servicing model. Hmm. Uh, we don't do service packs anymore. We announced it. Um, we only do cumulative updates now. And you'll see cumulative updates happen on a frequent basis for our current releases. And then as we move and a release, a major release becomes older, you know, it'll be more like more of a quarterly type thing, right? So we already made the change in kind of the incremental service model some. And so I'm not saying that we've made that decision for sure, but we're certainly taking a look mm. at what makes sense down the road from this, you know, versioning type perspective. Actually, on the show, we haven't talked about the incrementing uh, incremental servicing model changes uh, right. recently. Right. Right. So it's right. probably just worth quickly spelling out the differences there because basically people have sort of two trains to to attach themselves to, really. Well, we always had a train. We always had a little bit of that concept before, though, right? We had the train mm. of what we call GDR, general you know, distribution release, which is more for security fixes. So you always had the ability to stay. Let's say you went to SQL 16, SQL Server 16. You could say, look, I only want security releases. I don't want current changes from SQL Server that are hot fixes and so forth. You always had that capability. Um, usually when a service pack came around, then you need to make that move and then, and then go to GERs past that. And then you could do these cumulative updates, which are a cum uh, accumulation of hot fixes where we rarely put any kind of feature changes, right? It's more just fixes. What we decided to now is make a decision to say, look, I think that customers sometimes were two things. They were waiting for a service pack when we, we released a version of SQL Server to put on the, the server, yeah. and, or they felt it was such a major set of changes that they did not feel comfortable you know, making a move. Uh, maybe they felt they would have a breaking change. So basically kind of, kind of made this decision to say when SQL 17 came out, along with our Linux release, that we would eliminate the, the need for service packs altogether, that we would use mm -hmm. cumulative updates as that model. You still have the ability to stay in this GDR train, which we do have today. Um, but and, and we did a lot of uh, discussions with MVPs and customers before we made that decision. And quite frankly, overwhelmingly, the feedback was, yeah, I don't yeah. really want service packs anymore. Yeah. You know? No, no, no. Agreed. Yeah, that, that's actually been yeah. an interesting model. And so I could well imagine a, yeah, a future scenario where there were just endless series of builds and, and the product was more of a s subscription model or something rather than a, Correct. a license Correct. model. Yeah. Very possibly. Hmm. How would you imagine that would go with someone like a software house though? What do you um, mean? Where they're building applications and it's then how would I target like a version. I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, yeah. you're building software. The last thing you want is the underlying things keep changing. You know what we've oh. toyed with lately, Greg, mm. is, is database compatibility. Yeah. Um, we started thinking more in terms of would it make sense for us to make a pretty bold statement? And I'm, we're still kind of thinking about this. Could we make a bold statement to the community to say, look, if you, if you uh, build your app towards a database compatibility level, we will ensure functional, no functional changes happen if you move to a version. Let's say you, mm -hmm. you move to SQL 16, but you kept SQL 12's compatibility level. You're functionally, your app doesn't break. Yeah. But yet maybe you can take advantage of some new features in 12 or, or excuse me, in 16 that you didn't have before. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, and we're still pl playing with this a little bit. We've talked some to MVPs as well in the community is that, you know, does database compatibility help what you're talking about? As a developer, you just build your app and target that first. Knowing that a customer could run that on multiple SQL releases, so then they could take advantage of some features that they didn't have before, and then at some point you then try to go move to a new database compatibility level that's 
equivalent to the version you're on. And then you think about a, a feature like Query Store, which yeah. is we came out in SQL 16, where we re- we actually record the database compatibility level and the version with the queries. Mm-hmm. So you then could literally take a query store over a period of time and then test and compare your query performance across that. Um, so functional is one thing, performance is another, right? So if compatibility and functionality was more guaranteed for your app at compatibility, you might be more open to saying, oh, I'm not sure that I care my customer moves to SQL 17, for example, but my app is certified on this compatibility level. Yeah. No, no, I, I could well see that working. And and it's yeah. sort of interesting that uh, if I look at app development with mm-hmm. things like uh, people using NuGet packages and all these things, they tend to nowadays be set up to sort of endlessly be consuming later and later versions of those packages under the covers. And right. I, I do wonder if the database ends up needing to be something like that as well in some way. So, Yeah, and I think you, you start thinking about technology like containers. Yeah. Um, when you start thinking about those models – you know, if you think in terms of the container now as a database container, mm. maybe you don't really care about the actual operating system running in there, running your database application. Yeah, exactly. And then maybe in a, in a kind of a DevOps cycle, you're also updating that container with a new update to the database, right? So, yeah. but maybe database compatibility is something you keep uh, in that container. So you know, hey, here's my container with DB Compat X, but I don't really care if the updates happen on the actual engine itself or the actual software behind the scenes. Yeah. And in terms of setup of the product, uh, we noticed that uh, reporting services now often a separate setup. So yes. that's been sort yes. of decoupled. Uh, yes. is, is that a trend uh, towards sort of decoupling into sort of different yeah, bits I, and pieces? I, yeah, I, I don't. I mean, we it's a little bit of a trend in the sense mm-hmm. that the reporting services team made a conscious decision to say, look, we've we've got a path with Power BI that we're going. It doesn't mean that reporting services are going away. Yeah, um, but we kind of feel more comfortable allowing reporting services to be in a more standalone installation model so we mm-hmm. can do whatever we need to instead of being coupled with SQL Server. You look at Management Studio, kind of with the same model with tools. If you and, look to see, and SQL Server data tools as well. And data tools. Yeah. If you look also what we did with SQL Server on Linux, uh, if you ever go do that deployment experience, the engine, SQL Agent, uh, uh, Full Text Search, and HADR are all decoupled. Yeah. So when you do the SQL Server engine installation, that's why it's so fast. When you do that engine installation in a matter of minutes, mm. you don't get those other packages and even the tools like the client tools. But if you want those, you install those as separate packages. So yeah. we have moved to that trend a little bit, quite frankly, and it wouldn't surprise me if we just keep going that way. Yeah. Yeah, I've run a number of SQL Server 2017 classes uh, around the place, and uh, the, the, the biggest in impact initially when people uh, install on Linux is they're just shocked that it's done. <laughs> well, they don't believe it. They don't believe yeah. it. They'll run it. And in fact, if you first do it, it comes back and you're just sitting there going, what's next? <laughs> Does it work? Um, and so it's it's pretty pretty amazing process. But you know, in the Linux world, that's normal. Mm. Um, it's very, very normal to do more of a uh, let's do basic installation first and configure later. So that's kind of how Linux works. Mm. Some of the configuration choices you make for SQL Server on Windows during setup, you don't make during install. Yeah. Um, what you do is you have a Python script, a bash shell script, and a set of Python scripts where you configure things after the fact uh, versus making those decisions during setup. Um, and so that's kind of more of a model that we use in Linux. I mean, we haven't made that change in Windows yet. Mm. Um, and not sure when we might or how we'll do that. But in Linux... When we actually looked at that Linux ecosystem, that was a very popular way of how these packages get installed, whether you're on Red Hat, Ubuntu, or on SUSE. And mm-hmm. so we just kind of followed that model, quite frankly. But you're right. You, you go do this, and it's all command line driven. You run it, and you're like, okay, is it running? And yeah. you have to go, 
run a query real quick and say, oh, it's up and running, yeah. So. Yeah, no, it is. It's amazing. In, in terms of general engine things, uh, I, I thought one of the highlights is probably the resumable online index rebuilds. That's very nice. And, mm, and so are you seeing um, many people adopting that already or, um, or maybe worth spending a few minutes in talking about what's involved in, in how well that works? I mean, it, it's quite nice because think about the scenario where somebody – uh, I mean, online index index rebuilds in, in general are online, of course, right? Yes. But they do consume resources. So it could be a matter where you kick off an index build that takes quite a bit of time, and maybe for some reason that was bad timing. That's yeah. how I kind of look at this, right? And so somebody's like, hey, I, this is consuming a lot of resources on my server. It's online, but I really need to stop this. But you're like, this thing, maybe it takes, it's really large, right? So it takes mm. a couple hours. Well, you don't have to redo this thing. So that's the whole concept. And so you can literally just go pause this uh, with an alter index command. You pause it, and then there's actually a DMV where you can go uh, query the the current state of the index build and see that it's paused. Yeah. And you see its progress too. Where is it? 33% or whatever. Mm. And then you just decide whenever it's time again to just resume it, and we just pick back where we left off. So we kind of save the state of where we were, and then you come back and just resume it later. So very nice feature. And uh, I presume at, and, the version store is the thing that's grabbing the changes in the meantime. Yes, exactly. Mm, yeah. exactly. And yeah. then also, we just previewed that. I think we just announced preview for that on Azure as well. So yeah, uh, that, that's, that's one example where we are very much cloud-first approach. Sometimes we might take a feature, though, that we're very confident we can roll out on the engine um, that we need to take a little bit longer time to think about how it might work in a cloud scenario. Mm. So that's an example where we went first with the engine, then went back to the cloud. Most yeah. of the time, like Query Store is an example where we first went to Azure Database, made that work with a lot of customers in the cloud, and then pushed it down into a, a, the next release of SQL. Mm. Yeah, yeah actually, with index rebuilds, the, uh, I often used to – one of the things I liked about uh, doing defrag sometimes instead of rebuilds is the yes. was just the, the fact that, yeah, if you interrupted it, you, you got to keep what was done up to that yeah, point. Yeah, you could resume it back. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the thing that always surprised me with that one, though, I was talking to Paul Randall about it at the time, but I, I could never understand why it didn't have a parameter that allowed you to specify a time limit. Yeah, you, know, you should ask Paul to code that for you. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, and he was he was then gone or whatever. But yeah, but I was saying, but I often had scenarios where people said, "Look, you know, I have an hour here and an hour there or whatever to to do some maintenance work," and sure. it'd be kind of nice to be able to go, you know, just go and do an hour's worth. Yeah, tell me, you, you, you yes, it's a good suggestion. Run it for a certain period of time that I know it can do, yes. and then stop it, like a, almost like a scheduled thing, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and so what exactly. we have to do at present is start it up, and then you have to literally go and find the the process and kill it in in an hour's time. Yeah, which which is not yeah really really so desirable. So, yep. No, it's great. And and so listen, in terms of the Linux adoption, what what's the main driving thing there? Do you think it's going to be mostly people who are already maybe on a uh, LAMP stack type things, or is this uh, targeting existing Oracle sites uh, on Linux to do migration, or what's the main rationale? Yes and yes. <laughs> yeah. No, um, no, this is total true story. So, you know, for the last several years, we're building out SQL 14, 16, etc., and our focus is still thinking Windows. We really weren't thinking Linux, to be honest mm. with you. But we have a set of customers literally coming to us to saying, hey, we're a Linux shop. That's what we do. We love what you're doing. <laughs> you know, SQL Server's now top database in the Gard Gardner Magic Quadrant. Um, yeah. You guys are really competing with Oracle. It's a great alternative to Postgres. 
but we have to be on Linux. So we'd love to use your product, but we can't. And we're like, okay, we got to do something about this. Mm-hmm. And at the time, if you think about it, a couple of years ago, Microsoft also embracing Linux in a way it didn't before. Think about the Azure uh, adoption of Linux and Azure yeah. Virtual Machine. So Linux became a huge adoption play for Microsoft in general. And so we looked at this and said, we love running on Windows, but why would we not be you know, why are we turning down these customers that want to move to our platform? Mm. So that was the, it, it was the, it was the huge driver. It wasn't because a lot of Windows customers said, I want to move to Linux. It was Linux customers saying, I want to use your product. So that hence was this journey that we said, okay, we can do this. And yeah. so it, when we say platform of choice, we don't mean it in the sense that, oh, you know, you're out there just, you know, putting your finger in there going, oh, what, what OS do I want to be running on? Yeah. It's nah. more of maybe you prefer an OS you're running on, but you want SQL as a choice platform. Now, having said, so again, the customers that we've talked to during our preview cycle, the customers I talk to right now are Linux shops. They want to mm. make that move, right? Having said that, I have talked to some customers that are saying, you know what, I'm starting a new application now, and maybe I'm going to run in a virtual machine, maybe even, maybe it's an Azure and I'm not sure I care if it's Windows anymore. Yeah, yeah, and I've, yeah. got, I've got a set of folks I've hired, and I've seen this before. I've a set of folks I've hired that are new right out of college, and mm. that's what they use. They yeah, use like Mac, this, they use Linux. That's, right? that's, that's something that people don't seem to get. You know, it's, a, it's a discussion I've had when, when you look at some, something like an existing Oracle shop or something, and uh, people aren't getting the idea that just, you know, yes, Windows you know, might cost something different to Linux or whatever. That, that's irrelevant in, in the scheme of things. It's more the, you know, here is another operating system I have to support if, if I that's only right. want to support one within my organization. I'm at a point now where, and I've used Windows for my whole career at Microsoft, right? But again, I told you I used to use Unix. Hmm. Um, I, I think I, I, customers ask me this question, which one should I pick, Bob? And I'm like, don't pick it based on performance or some yep. other thing. SQL Server runs well on both these environments. Make decision based on where you're headed as a company. But again, you might be headed as a company where you've hired some new people out of college. They have MacBooks. They know Linux. That's, their, that's mm-hmm. what their environment is, right? And so I was talking to somebody the other day at a, at a user event and said, I'm so glad you did this presentation, Bob, because I'm a Mac user. I'm a Linux user. But my, my shop is Windows. Um, my whole company I've been hired into is a Windows shop, and I'm not used to that. But now – I can develop and use SQL Server and containers on Linux and build my app that way. And then if I need to move it to Windows, I don't care. This is still SQL Server, right? I mean, it's not going to be any different. And since Microsoft now supports Python, uh, you know, Java, you name the Mm -hmm. languages on either platform, I'm a little platform agnostic now, but I I get to work in my environment that I'm comfortable with, which is Mac and Linux, right? So that, it, it brings a lot of different choices for both sides to the table. But I would say to anybody listening here to this, you know, p- please don't think of, well, SQL Server on Linux just runs faster or Windows, it runs faster. It, it may, depending on your workload, but that shouldn't be your choice. It should be just based on the platform that it makes sense. And I still, I still believe that in the end, uh, in the future here, that containers could bring a new paradigm where I was talking to my uh, colleague Travis Wright about this, that, that maybe in a container world, you don't care anymore. Um, yeah. It's just a containerized database engine with an application and who cares what the operating system that powers it um, mm. so that we could be moving to a model like that which is kind of weird to say but it's possible now one of one of the things that i'm involved with is the microsoft regional director program and that that's kind okay. of like across technologies and it, it's an interesting group of people but uh, just notice at the highest levels within the company there seems to be a new uh, embracing of development and developers uh, to a level different to maybe what I was seeing a few years back. But that's something I'm still not really quite seeing in the SQL team, and that one's a, a bit different. And 
uh, I always get very excited when new development-related features get added to the product. Uh, but I know that even in, say, the SQL 2014 timeframe, when I was in pre-release meetings and I was asking about T-SQL enhancements, they were like, oh, you know, why, why do you need any? And I go, oh, you know. And I'm, I'm just sort of wondering, what's the thinking internally in terms of, you know, really improving the development experience the whole time and or and also keeping an eye, I suppose, on competitive products that are trying to do the same thing? It's good timing, Greg. <laughs> I mm. was in Seattle uh, this past week. Um, for for meetings, and I actually met some of our folks that are looking exactly what you just talked about, um, yeah. and they asked my opinion about this, and I said I do think that in the SQL team we do need to take a a fresh look at this. Mm-hmm. Um, are we paying enough attention to the needs of developers? Um, ironically, I think the move to Linux has kind of done a little of that, have woken us up to say. Yeah. You know, what are we doing for our development community? It doesn't matter what platform, because the Linux world is a very development-driven world, in my opinion, mm. from what I've seen. So I, I think you're absolutely spot on, Greg. We need to talk to people like yourself and others and say, what do you guys really need to be more effective as developers? Um, I think we're doing a few the things interesting I haven't seen us do before. I look at this new SQL Ops Studio that just came out, yep. and a lot of people could debate whether they think that's going to be a great tool or not. But it's based on Visual Studio Code. It, yeah. it has a very developer feel to it. It's cross-platform. And yet we're trying to kind of infuse into there the things that a developer might need plus a DevOps might need. Mm. Some management-type features along with the developer pieces, right? So I think also the whole concept of DevOps in general, which to me is a fairly new thing that's happened in the last couple of years, could also force us to rethink this as well. Um, in a DevOps world, it is developers, right? So yeah. uh, why would we not listen to them of the development needs they need along with the ops part of it? So it's a fair, it's a fair comment you make. And uh, I've had, recently just had conversations with our team about doing the, just what you're talking about. Yeah, because the, the thing I always look at with this is that in the end, if you're not having new applications built for the platform, then it won't matter how good the rest of the platform is. You know, exactly, and, and so yeah, you, yeah, you exactly, have, have exactly. to keep that sort of funnel of things coming in all the time, and have it be a platform of choice. It's uh, it's it also intrigues me that uh, when I look at the marketing um, of things like uh, Azure SQL Database, the the thing that fascinates me is the marketing always seems to be talking about uh, what you can do in Azure SQL Database, like it's uh, it in terms of you know, minimizing the number of things that are missing from the main product. And and it always sort of looks in terms of, you know, how you'd migrate across and what sort of things you'd have to do and so on. What I, I don't get is why there isn't a, a big evangelism effort going out there saying, hey, new developers or other platform developers, this is a great platform to build against, you know. So, I mean, targeting the people who don't have existing product baggage and who are worried about what's missing um, we should be out there sort of targeting the people who don't use it uh, currently in development areas and, and, and telling them why it's a great platform to target. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you have that uh, perception mm. because I think that's actually what we're trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> so we obviously are not doing a good job of it. Um, I would say that in Azure SQL database land, we've had far more success talking to new developers that just need data yes. um, versus somebody who's a SQL person or a database person. Yeah. Usually when I start talking, and for me, I've seen this myself. When I talk to, about Azure SQL database versus SQL server, it often ends into some sort of discussion about lack of this, lack of that. Exactly. Uh, you know, it, this kind of thing. Which is entirely the wrong discussion. Yeah. Correct. Correct. So, you know, when you think about platform as a service, this whole concept, right? 
Um, honestly, I, I want to talk more about the application. Yep. And you just say, by the way, we have this great database here uh, for your data. Just use it. Yeah. Uh, if you think about the the focus we put into Azure SQL Database lately, in especially into the automation pieces, mm. uh, think about just automatic, automatic indexing alone. I mean, imagine you're a developer. Maybe you know how to go build a table design. Like, you know how to go build some tables. You know how to build some key. You get the key concepts. You know how to build a primary key and some tables mm. and so forth. But past that, you're like, I don't know how to build indexes. I'm not sure. I just want to run some queries, right, against my yeah. data. I'm not saying we're there yet, but the concept mm. of what they've done in Azure SQL Database is use Query Store to monitor your app over a period of time and start automatically feeding indexes in the system to try to make your performance better and then monitor that and decide keep them or drop them. Um, it's really as simple as that. And we actually use built-in functionality into the engine to make that decision, uh, putting some machine learning on top of it. So we don't have that functionality in the SQL Server box mm. product. A lot of people do that for a living. They just monitor and manage indexes and so forth. But if you're a developer in the cloud, you don't have time for that. No, no, uh, indeed. You've got to build your app. Uh, in, so. in terms of performance, though, overall, um, it, it's something that sort of fascinates me as well. It's, it's one of the things that whenever I look at, say, from product support and things, they say, you look, here are the top 10, I don't know, uh, performance issues or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always sort of look at that and cringe a little bit. And and that's because what what the top 10 performance issues are actually dealt with before they get to CSS, right? Yes, um, yes. <laughs> and, and so they had this sort of very skewed view of, of what, where the performance issues are. And, and yet there are so many just absolute stock standard sort of issues. And, uh, it, it's, it's how we sort of get more of a focus on some of those things. Um, and in, in fact, how you get sort of tooling support and so on to help with the ones that are actually the big proportion of the problems. Um, and, and so that's interesting. It, see, it's a bit like if, if I look at a query and I say, I see this query and you say, oh, this is queries run an enormous number of times. How can we make it a little bit faster? And, you know, how could I auto tune it and so on and so on and so on? That's good. That's all very good. But the better question is why are you running the same query 12,000 times a minute with <laughs> exactly. the same parameters, right? <laughs> yeah. That's the right question, you know, not how do I tune it so it actually runs a bit better. I mean, I think about being a developer in the past um, and using a database. Uh, to be honest with you, I, the database was kind of the last part of my thinking <laughs> that mm. I really worried, wanted to worry about. I just wanted to get data in a very quick way and put data in a very quick way. And I was not – back in those days, I was not a SQL query expert. And so I learned to become that because I had to become that. Yeah. But I think the promise of Azure SQL Database, to be honest with you, is to get to a mode where you know you really don't have to worry so much about that. Mm. Ultimately, you're going to have some percentage you have to. It's an open-ended query system, right? Um, but if we can build more of an autopilot-type database concept to where this is your data store, use this thing uh, to your best that you know how to, but focus on your app core and design and logic, mm. it sounds like utopia, just saying this in the, on, here on yeah, the call. Yeah, yeah. But that is what we're trying to do, right? Yeah, because it's that. It's the thing I find that's interesting is that we often go into performance tuning engagements, and it's the fact that we're willing to get stuck in with the developers is the, is yes. the thing that can often get the outcomes, you know, uh, yep. whereas exactly. I see firms who go in just do sort of DBA type work. And uh, the, the, the problem is you're not addressing the actual problems, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. it, yeah, it's interesting when you, well, they're you patching start the problem. Right? Yes, they're patching the problem. And, they are. and in they the are. case of Azure SQL database and so on, particularly if there's any latency involved, uh, things like addressing the types of queries and so on going on. I mean, you can uh, alleviate it a bit at the database end, but but I mean, if every time you log on, there are 600 calls to the database, 
you, you are exactly. not going to you're not going to have something exactly. working properly. Exactly. Yeah. And and in fact, an Azure database, you know, we're probably not going to solve that out of the gate, right? I mean, yeah. we're going to take whatever you can. But if you think about it, uh, the normal development cycle of optimizing your app, you're going to start figuring out where your bottlenecks are, right? <laughs> so yeah, you, I think it, what you, I'm what I'm sort of getting at is that it'd be interesting when you have something like Azure SQL Database to be able to look at see one of the things that we do all the time is that we look at traces. And I kind of eyeball them, you're and I'm, I'm looking at that, yeah. and I'm I'm looking at yeah, what is what are they doing here that that maybe they could do differently, right? And and to give you an example, like um, I had one the other day where every time instead of issuing a select query, uh, what they would do is they'd go and open a cursor. Uh, then, then they'd uh, basically declare a cursor, open the cursor, they do a fetch on the cursor, and then it'd only return a single row, and then they'd do a fetch on the cursor again, and then that would fail. Then they would close the cursor. Then they reopened it again oh my to gosh. then query to get the parameter details, and then they closed it again and so on. And this is all instead of something that should have just been a single select, right? right. And, and But what I'm getting at is that when I look at a trace and you see this sort of pattern of things like this all the time, you know, often what happens, I'll go back and have a look in some ORM that they're using or something. There's some configuration options in that. that, that yeah, it was, not, it was not their intention to do that, right? It was, they're oh, they're yeah, just yeah, trying yeah. to use a, a framework and, it, and, a, and, a, and a given setting you made just made all these necessary calls, right? Yes. And, and so yeah. that's the thing I'm getting at is that you could get a world of good outcome by being able to recognize those patterns at the back end and be able to feed back to the person, hey, you know, if you... I see you using this framework, and if you had just made a few choices here, it would work much better with SQL Server. And a couple of things stand out as you say that. Number one, probably as, as we talk about paying attention to more developers, is to educate more about how to use the framework better, right? Yes. <laughs> That's one thing. <laughs> yes. But number two, um, what I love what you're saying is interesting because we've just recently, as kind of a, a related or, but orthogonal topic, we've, we've re we recently uh, announced some things for vulnerability assessments in the cloud. Mm -hmm. Where we can take a look at like possible injections <laughs> that are going yeah. on with T-SQL code, right? But we have all the telemetry to help do what you're talking about. Yes. Uh, for example, query stores on by default. So uh, now the tracing piece you're talking about of every single query pattern isn't there, but there's still patterns of telemetry from what you're talking about that we can see from like you just talked about the same call being made 600 times or something in a short yeah. period of time. So we do have a lot of telemetry that way. And so those kind of things are all possible you're talking about. Yeah, because as I said, like some of the frameworks will just wrap you right. know, an amazing amount of logic around each query instead of just issuing the query or, or every single call, they'll check to see if the language settings have changed. You know, or you know, or, yeah, or things yeah. like this, and you yeah. just look at it and you just shake your head and go, "That that's insane," you know. So, but the thing is, yeah, unless you can go back and somehow feed that back, uh, I think you could almost um, make a really big difference to to the the overall performance of a lot of these applications because people do tend to just use these frameworks straight out of the box and just hope for the best, and they are very generic, you know, the way that many of them are built. And then that frees up the engine to do more work for what you really need. Right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so well, now, I can tell you, I can tell you're passionate about this one, Greg. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. have some oh, experience no, it's, here. It's just, yeah, it's, it's just what we do. You know, I, I right. see it all the time. Right. Um, listen, another thing I want to ask about is, um, what's your thinking on the more and more sort of, uh, almost separate subsystems being added into the product. So, so it's interesting that, uh, I'm, I'm thinking in this case, maybe graph extensions uh, okay. as an okay. example, um, where there, there are just sort of more and more. Now, I suppose it's kind of a direction thing for the product. It's, 
is there a focus to broaden it out to more of a platform service? Oh, uh, there's no question. Yeah, That's yeah, what we're doing. An application platform? Yeah, we yeah. Are, we are absolutely than, doing mm. it. I call it like a hub, right? I mean, yeah. if you think about machine learning services, if you think about graph, and to be honest with you, it's all based on the fact of a couple things. Why not put some of this capability closer to the data where it is mm -hmm. versus you having to extract data out of us and then put it somewhere else and process it like a graph, yes. right, or, or Python or machine learning? And the other is we think we've built a pretty cool engine, right? I mean, mm. <laughs> we've got some pretty good scalable, scalability capabilities inside our engine in the query processor and the SQL scheduling engine and so forth. And a lot of times these machines are pretty powerful. So, you know, why not take advantage of all that inside a single database engine to provide all that functionality? And so it's, a, it's about closeness to the data and it's about taking advantage of the scalability of the engine itself that already exists on these servers. That's what I've seen to be our pattern, yeah. which explains why we do graph and explains why we do things like uh, machine learning services. Yeah, actually, the machine learning services, that was an interesting renaming, rebranding, and whatever in 2017 as well. And it, it actually makes perfect sense. And I, I really, really like having uh, Python and R and so on basically uh, in there. Plus also the... Uh, the fact that there's kind of an extensibility mechanism now much cleaner for how you could add other languages. So so that's kind of nice in, in itself. That wasn't by mistake. The team that built SQL OS hmm. back in the Yukon days, a uh, pretty bright set of developers, right? They get how to do those kind of things. And so they were the same team that architected this extensibility architecture. And so yeah. they out of the gate looked at this and said, okay, one of the things we got to do is make sure we don't run in the process space. <laughs> mm -hmm. We don't want to jeopardize anybody worried about that. In fact, I did some some pretty detailed trainings on this topic uh, late last year, early this year on this, because I wanted I wanted SQL professionals to feel more comfortable with yes. this architecture. So if you if you even search for some of my talks on SQL R services back then is what I mm -hmm. called it, I've got architecture slides where I describe exactly how this stuff works. Because yeah. I didn't want people to feel nervous, like, wait a minute, Python's running inside my engine process space? I'm a little mm -hmm. nervous, right? So yeah, the architecture is quite well, and it does set our set us up for if we want to extend this further to other languages. Absolutely. Yeah. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track, or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. It, it's interesting, though, that the approach that was taken was to actually basically put the source code in there, um, which the thing I never understood with the SQL CLR thing, I actually thought, personal opinion, they got that all wrong. Um, yeah. and, and what I would have done is I would have actually had it so you could put .NET code directly in there too. So um, right. I, I think the political thing where, you know, here, let me build an assembly, hand it to you like a black box and say, trust me, I, I, I just could never see that flying. I understand. And, yeah. and, and the other problem with that is it makes it version specific as soon as you yep. do that. Where I think if we could have just gone create function uh, from CLR Blah. compile language, comma, here's the code. Right. Uh, people would have just looked and gone, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, you know, I understand. And, and each yeah. database could have had a default assembly. Uh, I just 
to me, it, it didn't seem sort of thought through in that in that direction. And right. the idea of sort of sh having it as a, an assembly as like a lump, even if under the covers, that's what it had to be. I could imagine a database could have had a default assembly and the, right. you could just add and delete functionalities and things. But, but the difference is if somebody looked at a script of a database and they just saw a little bit of VB or C sharp or something and they just look and see what it does, they just go, yeah, okay, fine. You know, like yeah, instead it, of the black it, box part, yep, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. And the yeah. other thing is that it would be version uh, not agnostic, but yeah, version agnostic as well. Right, and so it right. would just work on any version. And so I was just sort of surprised that it it didn't have the same sort of thing. And now it's interesting with this, where uh, basically the source code is now sitting inside the T SQL script uh, in Python or R in many right, cases. Right. Mm. Right. And so, yeah, it was an interesting change of approach. But, but yeah, I think the having uh, particularly Python in there, I um, uh, and R, the same sort of thing. The the nice thing about that is if I look at the uh, the guys who do a lot of work, I don't know, the typical data science guy I was talking to yesterday, right. who right. who they would normally live their life in R Studio or something. And but the big issue is they're endlessly pulling the data out of the database right. in CSVs and things, and and. And it's a single threaded model and so on. It, right. It's it's actually a terrible security and architectural model. Yes. The, the, having it inside the database actually just makes a world of goodness. Well, it's interesting you say that because we, we worked really hard in 16 to get R first. We really want to do both mm. of those out of the gate. Um, R kind of made sense for us to kind of start with. And so 17, we brought on Python. But we worked a lot of customers who were making this move from data science projects in R to SQL Server R in 16. We found all sorts of interesting things, uh, kind of like what you talked about. Um, and then, of course, they were amazed at what we could do and run things on the engine. But we found stuff like where um, you talked about uh, running queries. And this is no fault of a data science, but mm. they would go and instead of use like group by <laughs> and yep. and use the power of SQL Server, they would do all of that aggregation in their R script. Yes. So they would just like scan a million rows and then just do all that stuff on the on the client and pull it all across versus like a single query that would return only a, one row they needed. Yeah. Um, so we 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 found optimizations like that all over the place when we made this move. So kind of mm. going to this model also forced. Uh, some optimization of some of these data science projects we saw, and things run just a lot better. Now, one of the things that I thought was a, an interesting addition as well was the ability to have sort of pre-compiled models and sort of deploy them in a binary state, though, as well, which is almost the reverse of what I was saying before. Um, but but the idea of being able to sort of deploy a sort of a binary predictive model uh, that, that runs super fast. Well, what... Not being a data science myself, hmm. but just understanding and talking to some of that community, this is not uncommon, right? Yeah. And so the concept of like training your model, uh, using Python or R scripts mm -hmm. to go take a data set and go train something, things run a lot faster when you can take and use R or Python to instantiate your model into an image. Yes. And so since SQL Server supports the concept of like a binary column, right? Yep. You just store your model into a table and then you just go later and say, oh, go execute my Python script and use this image model to do your mm -hmm. actual execution. So my understanding is from working with a lot of folks is that we get into production, that's a very common way to go run a production data science project yeah. and modeling project. And so uh, that's, we, we try to make sure we added all that functionality and built it in the SQL uh, from the get-go. Yeah, it's interesting. Just yesterday, in fact, we've been talking with a very large client who uh, at the moment uh, tends to sort of get a whole lot of their data and send it out and get predictions back like once a week or something and mm -hmm. and who are looking to sort of how do we do that real time. And I was saying to them, I think the thing I'd love to see them do is to wrap 
uh, all of that functionality into a Python model or, or an R model yeah. anyway, but, but yeah. then to be able to just make all the calls directly from SQL Server because they're already grabbing a whole lot of data from there anyway. Yeah, and the thing that, uh, to me, really puts this together nicely is the T-SQL part of it. So, And as you know, any client that can talk <laughs> to TDS, right, like can run a query, yeah. uh, now if you can bake this all into the engine itself, and let's say you put a stored procedure wrapper on top of the whole thing, like predict for me, right? Yeah. And even return back an image if you have to as part of your prediction. Um, anybody does T-SQL can consume it now. So yep. Any data science project now can be show up in Power BI. What it doesn't matter. Anybody can run a query can get back data from a data science project. Mm. That that's pretty cool. That's that's one of the nice features that when you wrap all yeah, this that's together, right. yeah, that's I not just the scalability. It's just the it's just the extensibility, right? Yeah, people are often surprised that like R plot and those, those sort of things. Yeah, which basically yeah. just yeah plot graphs and things. But the right. idea that you can do that and then have that return back as binary data. Yeah, it's great. Pretty cool. It's absolutely yeah. great. Now, in terms of the graph extensions, that's the one hmm, I'm, I'm still a bit so-so about in this version. The okay. uh, it, it feels a bit sort of uh, 0.8-ish or something. Uh, that uh, that one. Uh, <laughs> I'll pass that feedback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, look, yeah. I think the, the thing is I've, I've showed it to a lot of people now, and... There's a couple of things seem seem to be a stumbling thing. The 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 number one thing is the fact that there's no sort of like shortest path or mm. uh, that sort of functionality. So I mean, imagine right. if you're re-implementing LinkedIn or something, you've got no way of going. Look, am I related to that person over there, and how far away is it? You know, there's there's okay. none of that sort of stuff. Um, uh, that's one. Uh, the other one that I find uh, that they tend to say is. Uh, there's no sort of polymorphism. So I can't sort of say, look, tell me all the things that I'm associated with, no matter what type they are. You know, there's uh, that sort of stuff. Um, there, I must admit, I, I, I've talked to Shreya Verma, who we had on the podcast a little while ago. Um, yeah, she uh, is the person the, to talk to, that's for sure. Yeah, and the, the yeah. syntax and stuff for that. Oh, I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, not, not so loving the syntax either. But, but it's, it's interesting to start to have this in the product. Um, I, I do wonder how further integration of that is going to be challenging because, uh, for example, at the moment you can remove nodes and just orphan things and so on. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and I'm just trying to think through how I'm going to, I don't know, build triggers or build something, or, you know, something that will start to avoid those sorts of issues as well. But, but look, in, in general, it's something that people seem really, really excited about the idea of it starting to go into the product. And because there are a lot of things that you just, a graph models so much better than than a relational a typical relational database. Yeah, those are that's great feedback. I hope Shreya was very open to listening. She's pretty good about listening mm. to that kind of type functionality and feedback. You know, how do we make this actually better? Maybe more towards a 1.0 or 2.0. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, I, I, again, the, the the overall premise we're trying to achieve is what you just talked about. Let's mm. let's put let's put the modeling within the database itself so things that naturally look like graphs can just be used like graphs versus you having to go scan a bunch of relational data out into something that turns it into a graph, right? Yeah. Um, that's, that's what we're trying to do. So it's kind of, it is the premise more towards a modern platform with including something like graph, including something like machine learning services. And um, 
Yeah, it, it is the first opportunity for us to put it mm-hmm. in there. We've had a couple of customers be successful using it, um, but it sounds like certainly there's some opportunity to make it even better. Oh, yeah, yeah, very much. But look, I, I love the idea of having it in the database as well because right. the, the thing is it allows you to immediately take advantage of all the standard stuff, you know, your backup, your high availability, all of, exactly. that, all of that work is already done for you, you know, whereas if you go off and buy a, I don't know, uh, uh, Neo 4J or one of, you know, with Cypher or whatever, you know, the, the thing is you go off and get another thing. They've got to learn all that again. That's right. And, and they haven't, and they haven't yet. (laughs) Yeah. And think about our entire query processor. Think about column store index. Think about all the functionality that exists in the engine alone. You get the power of all that with this, right? Yeah. And so the, and it also means you don't have to make a, a, a choice of, I either use a graph database or I use a relational database. That's great exactly. too. And exactly. look, I thought that was actually the same thing I thought with the in-memory things. Like, cause again, you see a lot of, uh, in-memory databases appearing around the place. Right. But the idea right. of being able to sort of go, let me move this across bit by bit and having it embedded in the same engine. I think just that approach overall is actually a great approach. It is the concept we're shooting for. We don't always get it right. I know you and I have had several conversations about oh, sometimes memory, the struggle yes. with in TP. I know, <laughs> yes. I know, and and I, I'm just being transparent and frank that that's still something that we I, my heart burns over a little bit is that yeah we haven't made that feature and functionality enough that it's just a simple thing to move to and it just works well with you know it works really well when you've got kind of more of an isolated. Uh, application, right? Yeah. That's just purely after a stock market trading scenario, or I think we were recently in some conversations about session states and some of those mm-hmm. things, right? But what I, and I think you struggled with this a little bit out of the gate, was when, yeah, this is great. I'd love to move some of these workloads into this technology to take advantage of it. But then when I try to join this with a bunch of disk-based tables or put it in procs with temp tables yeah. or something, then this thing starts to fall apart a little bit. Mm. That's the part we struggled with, I've seen. Yeah. So I've seen it really well in for many Session states seemed to me like it would be the, the perfect thing. And it it's was interesting. Very, uh, thank you. you. You coupled me up with uh, the guys from BWIN to, to give me some yeah, background on what they were doing. But, but it's, a, it's an interesting example, again, in terms of uh, the, uh, the language itself. Because if, if you look at really uh, the attempt was how do I just go in and replace the ASP session state database and uh, what I've ended up deciding is I really need to rewrite the session state provider. Uh, and again, yeah, not everybody's going to be prepared to, to tackle that sure, sort of thing. Of course, of um, course. But the, and again, it's because things like if you have to do error handling, the language, to me, the real benefit comes when you move to natively compiled code. Absolutely. And that's the thing to me that is still uh, one of the real challenges is that yep. uh, I have, uh, for example, procs that, I don't know, a proc that takes, say, 26 seconds to run. I move the tables in memory and it still takes about 24, 25, 26 seconds. But if I right. move the code in memory, it runs in like 60 milliseconds and you go, yep. Wow. There you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and that's exactly. the thing. So, um, so I suppose the, the issue with it is that every time I look, I, I just still can't quite get enough functionality to sort of move all the code in. Uh, and 2017 got better because it added the case statements. Um, right. We try to, and, we try to, and that was a I good think thing. What we've done incrementally is just kind of remove some restrictions on surface area for things yeah. like that you're talking about. And again, I think what I've seen the sweet spot for this is, Low latency, high concurrency LTP type models, right? Yeah. That's where it's just shined, where it's not something where, like you talked about, I have to retrofit this with other types of things I already got in my app mm. and so forth. Where I've seen it struggle is the scenarios what you presented to me we've talked a few times about. So yeah. 
it's still a technology I, I really believe in. I still talk about it a lot. Um, and, and every time I hear situations like that you run into, it, it, it burns my heart. Uh, and we've just got to try to find ways to continue to push this to see, can we make it easier? Because it's, like, it's got some great potential still, in my opinion. Yeah. Because yeah. the other obvious ones to me, I would have thought replacing temporary tables, replacing table variables, you know, all those sorts of things. I mean, you'd think it would be the right way to do that but, but that it, is it, one that it yeah. is interesting so mm. i found in 16 when 16 released uh several people came to me to talk about this and uh they were already using table types that's yep. something they used in their app a lot and so that's a very easy change actually so that one you can yeah. just simply take the table have, you, type have you seen them try it under load though because yeah cause... i have and, it, and it's worked i've had several oh, people tell me okay. under loads work very well for them so if that's something you've tried and you're still struggling with we should talk about it further yeah. because and I, and I, what, I, I, what i like to do you talk about the b-win thing it's kind of funny mm. uh when you ask that question i thought to myself okay I can do – because I haven't really spent a lot of time on session state. Mm. I can try to do a ton of research. Or I can just let you talk to the people that made this rock. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, in so fact, yeah, I'd they, do the same thing. Cause I would what, do the same thing. I would, up, I would let you talk to those people that made this work well. So, so. Yeah, well, even even Perry and the guys that did the blog post about it, the, see, one of the things I looked at is they ended up building uh, legacy code wrappers – to yeah. call the in memory, and I just go, oh, yeah, <laughs> like I, that's, yeah, not for I, you. that's that's not really what I'm sort of after, you know, in in that regard. Yeah, I'm but a, the table I'm, types, but the table types worked pretty well for several people that said we moved to this model. Uh, two customers in particular that came to me and said, look, we made this change and we got really, really good performance under load with this. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. I, I I built a brand new operational data store for a large financial recently, uh, and I tried. Uh, setting all the table types is in memory first, and I kept getting a severe error has occurred intermittently. We talk, I think we talked about yeah, this, um, and, and we could uh, never put our, our finger and I, and around I what ran that out was. of time to debug it, but like I moved I, them back to uh, to not being in memory, and all the problems disappeared. And yeah. so every time I'd go in memory, I'd, I'd end up back in the same problem. And so, um, and so, so we'll, I, we'll, I, we'll have to have a future podcast show where Greg and Bob talk about their success, <laughs> success on in, in fixing that particular one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, because, exactly. yeah, look, I, I keep looking and I keep going, the potential for what the guys have done is just amazing. You know, like, uh, I, I don't think people get, like, how significant the uh, the potential stuff is there for the in-memory stuff, but 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 it is, it's the one that, yeah, I keep pushing because I, I just, I'm kind of a believer in, I, well, I can my, see the, the underlying is, things. I told our team on this technology, I said, when Greg comes back to me and says it worked for him, we can just say success. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, exactly. And so listen, um, a few other things. Um, analysis sure. services got a lot of work in this version as well. I have not spent a lot of time on that mm. um, and looked and see the work that that team did. I know that they were committed to making sure that they still made uh, proper enhancements on that. I, I believe their focus was more tabular still. I think that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think also another thing I heard that they'd done is to try to increase – uh, the ability for different data sources, kind of like from Power BI mm -hmm. type perspective that they could work with. It's a, um, so it's I know a huge that they, thing. Yeah. That, that's a huge it is, thing. It, it is yeah. a big deal. So I know they've spent some, some smart time on that. They also have a focus, as you know, they've got a, an Azure service there. They've, they've started to put out yes. a gate out there for analysis services. So, um, Look, they've told us they're still committed into this product and making it successful, mm. and that's why in 17 they said, look, we've got to put some enhancements here. They're important to our customers. I personally haven't spent a lot of time with them, mm. but I, those are the two that kind of stick out to me. No, no, no. In fact, uh, in the sessions I've been running around the place here, we do sort of a couple of hours on 
things in analysis services and and okay. there's wow. just a world of goodness in terms of the work they did in this version it's uh, it's actually good. really good um and yeah the getting data is uh, they, they i think they described it as the modern get data experience or something okay. but uh, <laughs> the marketing term uh, well but the power they, bi guys can set the standard there in my opinion yeah 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 uh, they, they uh, actually uh, to 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 be honest, I, I actually think M, uh, the M language and uh, Power Query mm -hmm. was the number one thing that has enabled all of that. And uh, it, it's interesting that over the years, you know, you've been around the industry long enough, it's pretty easy to get jaded and not too impressed yes. with new things. But when uh, the M language stuff appeared in Power Query, that's one of the few that I just looked and went, that's just amazing. You know, like, yep, I mean, yep. that really is something. And what I'm finding fascinating is that the way there's uh, seamlessly adding a little bit of machine learning AI type stuff into it, you know, so mm -hmm. uh, things like uh, add column by example and so on, you know, this sort right. of stuff. Right. I, I mean, it just appears as a new menu item, but I don't think people get the necessarily like how how awesome that is, the fact that right. you can now just have a row of data and just go in and start, you know, writing in what you're looking for and have it sure, work out sure. how to build the function for you. Absolutely. And is that sort of thing, I suppose that's a question, is that, uh, in terms of performance and diagnostics, I was saying before, you know, I could imagine lots of more machine learning AI type things in those areas. Is is that a focus uh, for for the product? Well, as far you know, you mean as far as machine learning as our feature I'm just thinking, or putting yeah, in machine... within the product itself, like oh, oh yeah, yeah, well, making use of yeah, it. Yeah, as you can see, what we've done in the database mm. engine in seventeen, at least the concept of intelligence and yep. more adaptive adaptive processing and more. Mm -hmm built in let's learn from ourselves to, based on telemetry is a focus yeah um, you look at adaptive query processing that we put in this engine in 17 you look at things like automatic tuning um, there's no question if you just kind of you talk to the different engineering teams that are at Microsoft everybody's kind of thinking that way yeah how, exactly. how, how do we use uh, telemetry and data to be smarter within the software that we, uh, mm. we already own right so um, and those two features I just mentioned are great examples in the SQL Server engine for 17 that we took advantage of. And then I, I already mentioned an example in Azure Database where we've even gone a little further uh, in, the, in the cloud as well. Actually, uh, another one too. You mentioned DevOps earlier, and, uh, and yeah. in fact, it's it's an area of interest as well. The uh, uh, Microsoft have a uh, professional program for. Uh, data science, which I did a year or so ago, okay. uh, and they now have a professional program for de DevOps, uh, which I've just about worked my way through. Um, oh, really? Which, which is, yeah, it's been really interesting going through it. Uh, I ended up co-authoring one of the modules with Steve Jones uh, for the database okay. one, and I'm actually working on a few of the other modules with the team at the moment. But the, the thing is, the database is still one of the... I wouldn't say the weakest link, but one of the biggest challenges in any of the DevOps... Uh, arenas, and I'm, I'm just sort of wondering: Is there any focus at the moment on trying to make that story easier? Um, well, you need to give us that. You, you, you need to give us that yeah. feedback because mm. um, I would say that probably one of the biggest things that we will start focusing more on is DevOps for SQL yeah. Server and databases. Um, now, you can make a case to say that, uh, uh, that there's a natural fit for DevOps if you're already using Azure. Right, mm. uh, using Azure Database or Azure Services, but for SQL Server itself, especially when you start thinking about using containers as a technology, um, if I had to think about anything as a more of a buzzword, I hear on the team over the last year, it's DevOps, 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 DevOps. Yeah. So and containers. So so yes, um, I think you'll continue to see us push that paradigm as you see us 
in the engineering team talk at, at events more, you'll even hear people like myself start using that language a lot more mm. and start pushing the paradigm on what scenarios works really well. We did a demo. One of our colleagues did a demo. Eric Kang did a demo at Ignite, which I thought was really amazing. And I've got yeah. to go back and look at the details of this, but it was kind of like using containers with a third-party partner with a clone database mm. to where – you could literally take a production database of a terabyte instead of having to copy the whole thing down so you could use it as a dev. You could use kind of a shadow copy of it. Yeah, and the, the Redgate guys have got SQL clone. Yeah, a little shout-out to Cass and the guys yeah, there. Um, yeah. But, but it, yeah, that's one that actually I've started playing around with more and more myself. The, uh, I, I think it has interesting potential, yeah. Yeah, think about the scenario. You're a developer. You need to use the actual production database, but it's like it's like two terabytes. I don't want to just – I see that myself on Microsoft. We're copying these large files all over the place, right, to yeah. do these kind of things when I do perf testing and so forth. I would love to be able to just spin up very quickly and access that database but it, but not touch the production database, right? Well, uh, and see, of, most, most places I'm in wouldn't let you anywhere near the production database anyway, right? But if it's, uh, so, but if it's this clone thing that no, no, I don't no, – No, 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 because you're not allowed to see the data. Right. Well, that's different. <laughs> and, and so, that's different. Yeah, that's yeah, different. yeah. So there's still the whole security, masking, trimming. You know, there's all of that sort of stuff. Uh, is that's a, fair? Yeah. I, I, and maybe it's an environment where you could. I'm just mm. saying the con- the concept of being able to access things in a more quicker way yes. and in a more efficient, faster way in these DevOps world is critical. There's no other way you can do this otherwise because the days of saying. Oh, you have to wait a day or so for this copy down to your machine, and then yep. wait a day to copy back. We just you can't survive in that no, world no, no, anymore. So, in fact, so the, I, the, I I agree with you as far as DevOps being a focus more for us on yeah, the database side, it, and it has we need to, to listen be. to people like yourself more to figure that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it it absolutely has to be a focus. The the place I'm at again next week, they have sort of four or five hundred developers, and just the deployment of uh, databases and things out to machines and so on, it's so scary to, to watch, you know, and and the time that gets burned is is insane. Correct. Yeah, and, and so that sort of stuff has, has to become trivial. But it's more the whole how do I fit it into a process because we're still a long yes. way short in terms of uh, things like state-based migration with, you know, like here's what I want the database to look like, here's where I am. You know, we're still, uh, there's still a lot of tooling stuff to happen to, to be able to right. enable that sort of thing. Um, because what I'm also seeing is that what typically seems to work is like a whole series of scripts, one after the other, and, I mean, that's fine. But I'm seeing deployments into, you know, very large databases where they're doing things like, you know, add an index and then drop the index and then add the index again with another column and then drop the <laughs> index again. And, so, and you look at a deployment and suddenly it's like a weekend rather than two hours because, yes. yeah. Yes. And, and just the mess and the, the ongoing, you know, logs that are being sent to other, oh, you know, just, just goes. And again, you look and say, what we really need to have is a better way of going, you know, please make it look like that. You know, and and more declarative to, type thing. Yes, yep. yes, yes, yes. Yep. It, it, yep. Ab- yep. And it's interesting that the infrastructure guys have moved to sort of infrastructure as code, and all of these things are moving to a more declarative model. But it's tough doing that in the database at the moment. So, but to, yeah. but to cap off, you're saying I think you'll see our team at least focus a lot more on DevOps scenarios in the coming in the coming cycles yeah. because. Um, we think it's critical to maintain leadership in the database industry. Yes, it is. So, yeah. And finally, I have to ask you about baseball. Uh, uh, <laughs> so I remember well, hey, you're a great baseball fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happened, what's happened lately or where, who are you following? Well, a couple, couple fun things to tell you about baseball. Number one, my team is the Texas Rangers uh, mm-hmm. here. 
and it's it's always it's always ironic and funny to work for Microsoft because our one of our competitors is Seattle Mariners. Yep. So my friends from Microsoft at Seattle and us are always during the baseball season <laughs> getting on each other about baseball. So my mm-hmm. team didn't do so well this year, uh, but mm-hmm. was one story that was really neat in the U.S. is the Houston Astros won the World Series. Yes. The, the, and this was a big deal to the city of Houston because, as you may have heard, there was this amazing, devastating hurricane mm. and flooding that occurred. And I don't live very far from Houston. I'm about four hours north of the city of Houston. Yeah. We were not affected by the hurricane, mm-hmm. but we're talking about like a thousand-year flooding scenario. Yeah. And you know that city was pretty beat down from a lot of that occurred. So winning the World Series was a really big deal for that city. Mm. Uh, it was really cool. On a personal note, um, and we may have talked this years, years ago, mm-hmm. my, my two sons, huge baseball athletes. Yeah. And so my older son graduated from college. He played at Tulane University Baseball in college, and that was a mm-hmm. dream for him. He didn't move any further past that, but he just had a really fun time. But this spring coming up will be my last year as a dad watching baseball. Oh, my younger yes, son. There you go. My younger son is playing college baseball as well in Oklahoma, and his, he's a senior, and his last year to play. And so the funny story is uh, we were at a family event at Thanksgiving, and somebody said to me, now who's going to be more heartbroken over the end of baseball in the Ward family? Is it going to be your son or you, Dad? And I mean I have put in, I don't know, 20 years of yeah. road travels and watching games and coaching and everything else into baseball. So it might be mm. harder for me, I think, actually. Umpiring, Bob. Umpiring's where you oh, I don't know. I, oh, gosh, I can't imagine <laughs> watching some of these umpires they have to do. So you know what I would really enjoy is to go back and coach real youth baseball, which I used to yeah, do. Yeah, like yeah. Go coach like 10-year-olds and stuff. Yeah, we you – know, uh, the fundamentals few, of the game. Some, right? some years back, uh, we, we, uh, we put a geriatric team in place, and then we ended up sort of starting a, uh, a junior club underneath that as well when I was up in Brisbane. And it was just a joy having under-8s, under-10s, under tw- – yeah, and, and so on up. It was, it was absolutely wonderful. So maybe I'll wonderful. be a grandfather soon at some point, right? Yeah, and I'll get yeah, to coach yeah. The but, the, but, but I have to say, look, I, I did spend a lot of years doing umpiring, and it was uh, – it was really interesting. I mean, the the first thing is that I, I was amazed how many people have never read the rules, even when they're playing at top level. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's, you can ask my wife because we'll watch a game and something will happen. And she's like, they're just making this up. <laughs> How'd that happen, right? And as an umpire, you have to know everything, right? You have to know those rules really it's well. It's incredible. And, and the, yeah. there's like a, it, the thing that was interesting with umpiring is there's kind of like a game going on under the game, uh, sure. sort of between the umpires and so on. It, it's, uh, it, it was well, really imagine. quite interesting to be involved in all that. Yeah. And, uh, it was great. And, and you see sort of weird things. Actually, one of my favorites, um, uh, there was a first first grade uh, male uh, baseball game in Brisbane one night. We were and uh, I was a base umpire, and uh, but it was rain interrupted, and they had bylaws that said you had to complete at least three innings. Um, and so sure. the bottom of the second, the one team just kept batting and batting and batting, and 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 the the final and the two umpires were just looking at each other and going, hmm, "Okay, what are they doing?" <laughs> and uh, it, it ended up like thirty two one. Oh my god. The gosh. score and then it was a draw. Because of the rain. <laughs> and it was oh a manager era. <laughs> oh hey, listen, I've been in youth baseball where you have timed games, right? Yes. You have a timed game. And we realized as a team and the home team in the bottom of the inning, we were behind that if we if we got out very quickly, the next inning could continue. We could continue yes, the game. Otherwise exactly. the game would be called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and have this, literally this told my thing. kids. I don't know if you remember this rule, step on the plate and hit the ball. Yeah. <laughs> and at a really young age, these kids are like, do what? Do what? Yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, step yeah. on the plate and hit the ball. Uh, they're like, awesome. what? And so they would do it. It called out, and we got the next inning, and they're like, 
they didn't know these rules, right? Yeah. So I literally have parents going, why did you have my kids step on a plate at the ball? Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. like, I know it seems pretty cheesy, but we just want to continue the game. Otherwise, right. we, the game would be over. So you, you yes, just I know what you're talking about. You'd hope at the first grade level, you know, yeah, people would actually understand bylaws and things. But anyway, yeah, know, listen, so listen, it's been so wonderful talking to you today, Bob. The, oh, Greg, thank uh, you so much look, for inviting is me. Is there yeah. anywhere people will see you coming up? Uh, yeah, that's always a great question. Well, mm. next week in Toronto at the Tech yep. Summit. Tech Summit's kind of a roadshow post-Ignite uh, thing. Um, a couple things on the internet uh, on YouTube. I just did two uh, past virtual chapters, mm-hmm. one on SQL Server 2017 for the DBA Fundamentals chapter. Yep. So if you really want a good overview, you know, you want to take a nap some Sunday and listen to me drawn on about SQL 17 overall – uh, that's on YouTube out there. Yesterday mm-hmm. I did a talk on performance. So all these features like adaptive query processing and automatic tuning. I just did that on YouTube yesterday. That should show mm-hmm. up next week, I think. And then next year, um, I think it's a good chance I'll be at SQL Bits. Um, yep. I love going to London. That's one of my favorite places to visit in the world. I have so, to Bits, but every year I look and think I wish oh, to be there. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great city mm. to visit and the people are so gracious there. And, uh, I don't think the session schedule's all been finalized, but I hope to make it to, to SQL bits. And other than that, uh, right now, I don't have any other events at least scheduled that I'm going to speak mm. at. I think I, I think I read today that SQL Saturday is in Dallas again next year. It's yeah. kind of hard for me to turn down the local folks when yeah, I yeah, live yeah, here. Indeed. Right? So. Uh, Actually, one oh, one that's worth. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. One other event <clears throat> is SQL Intersection, which is an yep. under under heralded event. So Paul uh, Paul Randall Paul Kim Tripp yeah, run an yeah, event yeah, yeah, yeah. in Orlando called SQL. I've already committed mm-hmm. to speak there. I love going there. If if you're in the if like you're in the U.S. for example, mm. you talk about an amazing rock star lineup of rock stars, yeah. and you get like one on one dinners with them. That's that event. So I'll be there in March for that. Yeah. Event, so. No, that's yeah. good. Actually, yeah. one one that I give a little shout out to that um, yeah. possibly can uh, think about sometime. I went to SQL Day in Poland uh, last uh, this year in May, and it was completely amazing. Um, it it was a really up and coming, really, and it had probably about I think about eight hundred odd people or so. Like it was a really good event. And uh, funny you mention uh, that I did that mm-hmm. event in two thousand fourteen. Ah, there you go. I cool. did, and I thought it was a really, really good event. So yeah, I yeah, think yeah. I'll find my way back there again another day because those people are just really nice. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. Really and, had a great so time I encourage there. Encourage people yeah. to think about that one. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's just Absolutely. yeah, Poland isn't probably one of the things that immediately comes to people's mind. But yeah, yeah, it was a great, great event. So the organizers really know how to put a pretty mm. good show on there, and I remember I could tell that even 14 when I was there. So yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. terrific. Yeah. So thanks so much, Bob. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas to you. Happy holidays, <laughs> and uh, thanks for having me today, Greg. All good.